Hey folks, I'm Will Jarvis. Along with my dad, Dr. David Jarvis, I host the podcast Narratives. Narratives is a project exploring the ways in which the world is better than it has been, the ways it is worse, and the past toward making a better, more definite future. I hope you enjoy it. Hey, folks. This week on the podcast, we have Freddie DeBoer. Freddie, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. How are you? Doing all right. So, Freddie, I wanted to get started. I, I first found your work. I actually read the book, Cult of Smart, and I really enjoyed it. Um, can you give us just a b- brief background of who you are and um, how you kind of came out came up with some of the ideas in the book? Sure. Uh uh, I guess I am a writer, and um, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm still an academic, um, but uh, I, uh, I have a PhD uh, from Purdue University, um, which is from an English department, um, but I didn't study literature or anything like that. I studied um, uh, writing and writing assessment, uh, language testing, things like that. Um, a lot of it was quantitative, a lot of research methods and things like that, um, and I wrote a dissertation about education policy, um, specifically about tests of higher education, but also about um, writing assessment at large. Uh, and uh, yeah, I um, uh, I was a teacher uh, at the college level for 10 years. And anyway, so, you know, years and years of being an educator left me deeply dissatisfied um, with why, with the question of why um, we do things the way we do them. And uh, becoming a you know professional researcher and writing a dissertation and reading all this education um, research didn't offer any answers either. Um, and so that dissatisfaction, the things that I discovered in that research and my own experiences uh, became the book. Excellent, excellent. And so I just want to get started with a this is kind of a broad question, but in ed research, from what I've read, and I'm by no means an expert at all. Um, but it seems that it's really hard to find any robust effects other than like maybe direct instruction or small group tutoring. You know, why don't we focus on this more in education? So there's a few things. Um, uh, let's I mean, let's talk about the, the the size of the effect we're talking about. So okay. In terms of a high quality, large meta study that demonstrates the effects of small group tutoring, the best and re- most recent one that I know of. Um, aggregates the effect sizes at about 0.4 of a standard deviation in terms of the positive impact of a uh, uh, small group tutoring. And this is specifically on low-income children, but I imagine that we can extrapolate that to the population. Um, 0.4 is, in the context of education, as you're suggesting, quite significant, and it's meaningful. Um, But uh, it is, uh, you know, uh, typically you'll see people estimate the size of the black-white achievement gap, for example, as a full standard deviation. So, you know, education is a a magic bullet world. And everybody wants to find the thing that will solve all of our problems. Um, And tutoring won't do that. Also, you have to understand that tutoring is not sexy, right? Like um, (laughs) education is a field that is absolutely obsessed with, um, the latest and the greatest things that it seems particularly innovative. Um, the the obsession with educational technology, despite decades and decades of results um, showing that educational technology has no effect. Um, so that's another reason. 
it's also important to say uh, there's limited money in, there's limited potential for money in small group tutoring, right? Right, that makes a, sense. You can start a company uh, and you can um, uh, hire a bunch of tutors and pay them $15 an hour. Uh, and you can insist they all have college degrees if you want. Um, and you can put together this company and you can, you can sort of sell your services to, to public schools. Um, but that's not going to move the needle in terms of investors, right? Like, um, right. for startups now, the goal is to become a unicorn, right? One of these companies that uh, has a billion dollar valuation. And um, in order to do that, you have to excite the investor class. Um, and that simply doesn't exist uh, in the world of, of tutoring. Tutoring is something we've known about and have been doing for, for centuries, right? Um, and so uh, it's it's not as sexy as, you know, I have a new app and this app is going to change the world, right? Um, the reality is that the app is not going to change the world. It's not going to change anything, but uh, investors want to take big swings for the next Facebook or Google or whatever. That makes sense. So it's just not profitable to start a tutoring company, but it is profitable to create like, some crazy new app that would really help education yeah. in this country. You have to understand that there's just a deeply unhealthy set of incentives within our educational system. Okay. Um, so education is, uh, we've got the biggest layer is uh, public school teachers who are unionized government employees. Um, the vast majority of whom did not go to elite colleges uh, they are uh, culturally and socially and economically quite distinct from the people who set the policy. The people who set the policy are a collection of, number one, academics, uh, people who, uh, who teach uh, and research at major universities. They almost, almost universally have attended elite uh, colleges and universities. Uh, they make significantly more than the public school teachers. Uh, then you have the think tank world. Um, the think tank world is, I mean, there's almost literal unanimity among American educational think tanks in terms of what they believe. Um, it is very, really? it is very difficult to find even an inch of uh, of space between them. They all have embraced a um, extremely uh, sort of narrow vision of student success, which is built on student choice, which means charter schools, uh, and uh, and chipping away at teacher tenure protections and eliminating the public school teacher union. Uh, these think tanks are funded overwhelmingly by people who are uh, quite wealthy or people whose foundations are quite wealthy anyway, uh, and who uh, who come from from business backgrounds. Uh, increasingly from uh, the Silicon Valley backgrounds. Um, these are people who are used to results uh, because software problems are easier problems to solve. And so they say, I'm going to send my engineers to do this and we're going to do this. And so the effect of all this is that you have um, all this money filtering in, which is tied to the idea that, you know, there is some individual problem in education or some small number of problems in education. And because all problems are solvable with the application of money and engineering, we must be able to fix them if only we, we want to. Um, what they can't countenance, what they, what they won't believe, is that there are in fact some problems that are quite sticky, uh, that are not, we do not have levers to fix. Uh, and that, uh, that, that, you know, probably the best thing for us to do is to muddle forward with um, trying to find the least bad solution. But that is very much not the ideology of the apparatus that creates educational policy. That's really interesting. So it seems like 
kind of what you're saying is policy in this country is essentially led by, you know, okay, elite education consultants who are far removed from on the ground teaching for one thing from the kids. And they're also, they're funded by, you know, Chan Zuckerberg or the Gates foundation uh, who think, you know, if we only have this magic bullet to solve this one problem, like maybe it's, we think teacher quality is a problem or something like that. I, I don't know. Then if we just fix that, it would be, we'd be done and education wouldn't be a problem anymore. Um, yeah, that's exactly right. Um, uh, it is there. Is, I mean, this is a, a broader American problem, but it is, it is the, the thinking that all problems are problems of will, right? That any time that there's a persistent problem, it's because we have not we have not decided to solve it, right? That we have not buckled down and just really exerted our will. Uh, and it's part of a country that, um, despite all of our endemic problems. Um, likes to think of all problems as, as uh, eminently solvable. Interesting. That's a really good frame. I've never thought about it like that. And it, it somewhat explains why America has problems that the rest of the world, world, developed world doesn't have. And we have, when we don't have problems that the rest of the developed world has, and this weird like mindset we have. Um, I want to talk about that mindset. I think it feeds in pretty well to, um, the cult of smart. So what is the cult of smart? And maybe can you talk about the, that incident in your PhD program at the party? I think that's pretty, pretty powerful. Yeah, sure. Uh, the cult of smart uh, it, it means two things uh, in the book. The, the first thing is um, it is um, a, a set of policy conditions and economic conditions, which favor economically favor as well as socially and culturally and pol- politically favor the interests of the educated. So it is um, the fact that, in this country, um, you know, uh, when, you know, if you go back 50 years uh, uh, from the end of World War II to uh, say the, the 1980, um, there was a path to, if not what we would call prosperity, then at least the stability and dignity, if you did not have a college degree. Um, there were, uh, you know, uh, jobs in manufacturing and in, in industry, which um, provided a living wage and um, often a union uh, to improve working conditions um, and which uh, allowed people to uh, have a wife, own a home, raise children, own a car, put some children through college. Um, that way of life has largely disappeared. Um, the, uh, we still, we're still a manufacturing powerhouse in this country, uh, but the uh, percentage of people employed in manufacturing has plummeted. Uh, because we've gotten very, very good at automation uh, in, in the manufacturing and industrial worlds. Um, we build robots and they do things that humans used to do. Um, there's also uh, the influence of offshoring, so jobs going to Mexico and then to China. This is more controversial, but there's a lot of people who think that, uh, that that's also a part of it. One way or the other, um, it's really difficult to have a replicable path to prosperity if you don't have a college degree. Um, of course, there are exceptions. You can be a movie star, you can be an NBA player, you can be right. a, a rock star, but those are not replicable things. You cannot, as a rational person, begin that path and think, this is going to provide me with the life that I want to live. And so that's the economic conditions, but also, you know, you have uh, political conditions. So uh, uh, the um, the rise of uh, everyone being involved with major political campaigns, uh, being uh, educated at elite uh, private colleges. Um, this is something that's really hard to quantify. Uh, but Is, um, is this a new phenomenon? I mean, the extent to it is new. The extent of it okay, is, like, I mean, gotcha. I mean, if I was, if I was going to uh, make an estimate, I'd say that it really ramped up in the 1990s. 
Um, but, uh, gotcha. you know, it was perfectly common uh, in the middle of the last century for people who did not have a college degree at all to be, um, you know, powerful big wigs within the political apparatus of the major parties. Um, that's certainly not true now. Uh, and so, um, you know, and so politically, the interests of the educated people are, are overrepresented, et cetera. So that's one half, you know, the, just the structural ways in which um, the interests of, of the educated are, are um, favored in our society. But the other half is the cultural sense, the social sense, which is just that um, the obsession with uh, education as being the only value, as being the determinant of someone's work, um, the sense in which your educational uh, background says deep things, not just about how well you did in high school or what you learned in school, but um, in this in this more nebulous but very real sense of sort of uh, adjudicating who's got more value, right? So, um, you know, even years and years after graduation, uh, if you meet someone and you, you talk to them and you exchange where you go to schools, many people would detect a sort of weird and subtle uh, and unchosen sort of set of like feeling of, you know, oh, you know, I went to Brown, uh, you went to uh, Yale. So I feel, you know, part of me feels like, you know, hey, Brown's the school that people who didn't get into Yale go to, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Um, that sort of thing, that, that pecking order is inculcated in high school. Um, and it is people's singular obsession for years in, in their adolescence, right? I mean, the, the, the college uh, uh, rat race to, to get into a great college, uh, it gets harder and harder every year. Uh, and um, uh, it, uh, uh, it's, for many people, it has to be an obsession because it's so hard now, right? right it's full-time so, job, crazy status game to get, you know, you got to play all the sports, you have to get the test scores, you've got to speak six languages and start some nonprofit that does something all just to get into one of these elite schools. Right. And the thing, is, and the thing is, is that like, um, you know, uh, this does not just go away when you get into a school and graduate. Right. If you've been, if you've been going through this gauntlet where again, like I think it's really, really relevant. It was really hard to get into a great school when I was in, was, was applying to colleges in the late 1990s. Um, but now it's vastly harder because elite schools don't increase their enrollment numbers, but the number of the population of American teenagers keeps getting higher and higher. So you're simply getting more and more and more people vying for the same limited number of, of, of seats, right? So you don't go through that process without it leaving a mark on you. And one of the things that it does is it conditions you to see, you know, this is the arbiter. This is the thing that determines who I am. Uh, and as I say in the book, I think that this is expressed in a lot of subtle ways in American life. Uh, uh, and so the, this, the story that you mentioned, um, I was at Purdue getting my, my PhD. I think this was 2015. Uh, and um, I was at a cookout um, with uh, students from the second language uh, program, uh, PhD program. Um, and there was a bunch of people there, um, uh, most of whom I didn't know. Um, including some people from other departments. And there was a woman there. Uh, her husband was a PhD student. Uh, I believe he was in a STEM field. Uh, I'm not uh, remembering at the moment, but um, they're from China and they had two kids, two little boys. Um, and, you know, I was just milling around uh, and 
uh, the mother was talking to some people and the child and the, the a younger child, uh, the older child, excuse me, was walking by and she was, you know, she was doting on him. She was talking about how, um, how impressive he was, how he was, uh, had the best grades in school and how everybody thought that he was a prodigy and how he had, he was in a robotics club, you know, already at his age, whatever it was, you know, nine or 10 or whatever. Um, and uh, then a, a little bit later, uh, her younger son walked by and he was being goofy and he was like making farting noises with his mouth. And she said, that one is maybe not so smart. Uh, and I, you know, I got, I clenched up. Yeah, I saw other, other American people kind of punch up. Right. Kind of an awkward moment. Because in America, anyway, uh, we don't say about our children, he's maybe not so smart. Right. And you would never do that. You would never do that about a child because that's just such an intensely negative thing to say about someone. Now, I can't say if this would be a common thing for someone in China. I have no idea. But she did not feel um, that this was tab- taboo. You know, she was. She just felt, you know, perfectly comfortable uh, expressing that before a group of, tr- of strangers, um, mostly strangers. Um, and so, you know, later on that day, I was thinking about it, and I was thinking, you know, why did I have the reaction that I had? You know, why did I find that um, so 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 t- that moment so tense? Why did it make me feel so awkward? Um, because you know, as I thought about it then, and as I think about it now. Um, if she had said, um, he's just not an athlete, it, I wouldn't have cared. It, it wouldn't, I wouldn't have remembered the story. If she had said, he doesn't have an ear for music, right? I wouldn't make any difference to me, right? Uh, if she said, he doesn't have any artistic talent, you know, who cares, right? But when you say that someone is not smart, right? That's different. That is an indication of their total value as a human being. And I reject this uh, idea, even as I unconsciously uh, am a part of it, because um, human beings have many values. Um, We can be smart, and that's important, um, but we can also be compassionate. uh, We can be creative. uh, We can be patient. uh, We can be loyal. uh, We can be good friends. We can be good listeners, right? There's all kinds of ways to be valuable human beings. But I think both the economic pressure to succeed in, in school and um, the, uh, the cultural uh, association between education and value has created this situation where um, we speak in shorthand about human beings by reference to their, uh, their educational it's a really interesting way to frame it. I had never thought about it until I read the book, but then it, it's, you start to see it everywhere and you start to think, man, I just sized that person up because of whatever degree I saw on their LinkedIn profile, which school they went to. It's like, man, that's a really horrible way to think about a person. Um, so what do we do about this going forward? I mean, it seems like it's such a complex problem, but you know, like these elite universities, they're never going to, if you wanted to get, you know, killed and you're the president of harvard you'd say guys we have the best education in the world we're going to triple enrollment to serve all these other people we've got this big endowment you know they're never going to do it the the, all the values from the velvet rope uh you know what's the path forward for higher education in particular yeah so i mean i think it's important to spell out one of the reasons one of many reasons that harvard would not do that is because um 
truly elite universities are quite different from most universities in that uh, most universities are uh, are tuition funded. Um, many of them gotcha. get many of them get some amount of money from the state, but that has been declining for years everywhere, and now represents a, for for most schools a pretty pitiful sum of money. Um, so they are dependent on their enrollment um, and gotcha. the health of these institutions one year over another is just really dependent upon these, you know, weird minor fluctuations where if they have 300 more students or 300 less, that actually has a really significant impact on their bottom line because they're, they're tuition dependent. Got it. Harvard is not right. Yale is not. These institutions have massive endowments, as you mentioned, um, which are, you know, uh, uh, investment portfolios that they sit on and, and are in, in, in the tens of, of billions of dollars for the top schools. Um, and they're fully capable of living off of those if they have to for a long time. Excuse me. Just the, uh, the, the you know, interest from, from those uh, 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 investments are likely more than, you know, many, many colleges make uh, in terms of their tuition dollars in a year. Um, but also... Uh, these schools are uh, are are the, what funds the endowment, what keeps it growing, is uh, not tuition but alumni donations and, and parent donations. Gotcha. So uh, it's really really important to Harvard that they be producing students who uh, have the ability to to pay into this endowment and 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 keep the university growing at least in terms of money um, after graduation. Uh, and uh, one of the easiest ways to do this is by selecting students who are already wealthy, right? So um, it's not just like a, yeah, it's not just like a, a going in. Like when people talk about the, 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 you know, the cost of attending Harvard as a rich person, right, of getting in, it's not, I mean, you know, it's absolutely true that at most schools, you can just grease the wheels with a large enough donation and your idiot son can get into the school. <laughs> um, but, but it's not, that's not where most of that money matters. The, the money that matters is on the back end and, when that, that idiot becomes an alumni who gets a job at an investment bank and can then make these donations, right? So, Got it. you know, Harvard's affirmative action program, uh, they won't tell us enough about this for us to know for sure, but um, it's long been understood to be made up not of, uh, of uh, African-Americans, you know, uh, black students who are the descendants of slaves for whom affirmative action was originally uh, intended, Right. Are often wealthy Nigerians, for example. Yeah. Um, and it, it, it really sucks. Reason. Yeah. For the, for the exact same reason, right? Because they know that that's someone with parents with money and that they'll be someone who'll be able to produce these alumni group donations in the future. Um, so, uh, look, what do we do about it? Um, there's a few different ways to approach this. It's going to be really, you, you can't just change the culture with, with good intentions, right? Right. And I, I do think that if we got the word out among parents and were able to uh, convince them that like, look, like ultimately you're hurting your children and other children by placing so much intense value on, on educational performance. Um, when you force your preschooler to go through the process of getting into an elite preschool, God. some of which costs more than $30,000 a year, um, and have intense entrance uh, requirements with various assessments that, that they've dreamed up. You know, you are creating this understanding in that very young person's brain that your love is dependent upon their performance in school, right? And yeah. that um, I think we can tell parents and we can uh, and we can uh, ask them, like, you know, model uh, 
a concern with values other than uh, other than education. I think we can do that, and that could have some effect. But ultimately, if this cultural situation is the product of the economic situation, only economic change is going to fix it. Um, Got it. Unfortunately, I don't have uh, a blueprint for how to fix the American economy. <laughs> but, um, look, it's big picture. Right. Real simple. For most of the 20th century, productivity goes up like this, right? It rises and wages, as, uh, the line is the same line, basically. Right. right. As, as productivity goes on, real wages rise in concert with them. Sometimes in the mid-1970s, perhaps, around there, uh, those lines diverge. Uh, the line for real wages flatlines um, while product- productivity gains go up. And so uh, workers, so people whose uh, lives are dependent upon a salary and not on uh, interest or investments, um, simply uh, cannot continue to see their, their quality of life improve like their parents did because the money simply isn't going to go to them. Um, this is a big problem. It's deepening all the time, right? So, you know, you see this in an extreme sense, like with like the gig economy. So um, right. people making very little money uh, with essentially no benefits at all and literally no uh, permanent relationship with the employer where the employer can let go of them at any time, right? So right. kind of a bad employment situation on all fronts that is sold as being, you know, this dynamic economy of the future, right? Um, so, uh, and of course, you have the spiraling inequality as the people at the top make more and more and more money. Right. That problem, I don't know how to solve. Um, uh, it's, it's a structural problem that uh, is uh, is not going to be uh, easy to fix. But what I, I what we can do, what we certainly have the capacity to do, because this is the richest country in the history of the world, uh, yeah. is to uh, is to create a more redistributive model. Um, that squashes the top and the bottom because they're close together and that lowers the costs, the risks of not doing well in school, right? right? So we could build a Scandinavian social safety net that uh, provides for things like truly universal health care, housing credits, uh, child credits for parents so that they can afford to have babies, uh, <clears throat> Uh, the whole, you know, uh, sovereign wealth funds, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like the, the whole suite of social democratic initiatives that are popular in the, uh, in the Scandinavian uh, states. Um, there's no reason we couldn't do that, right? right. Be funded with higher taxation. But again, we have filthy rich people in this country who are more than capable of taking a bigger haircut on their t- with their taxes uh, and continuing to be extremely wealthy. Uh, the advantages of this. Now, look, this is not my ideal system. I'm a I'm an anti-capitalist, not a reformer. But um, this system uh, would uh, one of the advantages of it would be: suppose you're a kid who strikes out in the academic ball game, right? Right. Suppose you're someone who, wherever a- academic ability comes from, whether it's at all genetic or it's completely learned or it's environmental or whatever, um, uh, if you lose. Right. In a system like the one that I'm describing, it's just the, the costs to you are far lower. Right. If you lose in this system now. Right. Uh, you might very well end up being uh, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, uh, 
under or unemployed iron worker in the Cleveland suburbs who's addicted, addicted to Oxycontin and who um, survives based on disability checks. Really um, bad off. Yeah, and are, are living a desperate existence. Um, that, I mean, those are the costs of not, of not the, the potential costs of not going to school, right? Because, because your income potential has been cut so dramatically. Um, and I think that there are cultural benefits as well. So, you know, Finland is one of these Scandinavian states with a significantly more generous social state than the United States. Uh, Finland is uh, believed by many to be the uh, most successful education country in the world. Their, uh, their metrics are competitive or, uh, or, or victorious in um, almost any measure that you look, you look at. Um, and yet, uh, despite all being this amazing education factory, um, it's perfectly common for Finnish five-year-olds to not be able to read, right? Oh. In fact, it's perfectly common for Finnish parents to have never attempted to teach a five-year-old to read. Oh, no way. It's really? Totally common in that culture. Um, I'm, I live in Brooklyn. If some Park Slope parent, you know, some, a couple of affluent bougie liberals, yeah. uh, you know, with their kid named Caden or Dallas or whatever, right. if, that, if that kid isn't like showing real progress in reading at three years old, They'll they'll have a it'll, you know there'll be a crisis for them right like they'll right. be in specialists they'll be we're, we're, and, yeah we're sending in the social worker right <laughs> like you know wow and so, and so for me right that demonstrates that we can dramatically lower the temperature of the academic rat race make our kids less crazy save uh, uh, millions of teenagers from this just brutal grind of right. Uh, of this uh, of this system, and still produce good ac- academic. Output. I mean, what that shows me is um, academic excellence does not require, in fact, uh, a culture that uh, treats all of education as life or death. Interesting. It does seem like we we really do treat education as life or death in this country, and the the battles over it are just so so vivid. I I, I wonder. Um, so you mentioned, I want to go back a little bit. You mentioned 1970 as an inflection point for, you know, productivity growth and wage growth decoupling. Um, and we talk a lot about 1970 on this podcast because it seems like a, it, there is an inflection point. And I wonder what you think um, about kind of the urban rural divide and education in this country. Um, so I'm from rural Eastern North Carolina. And if you cut off Eastern North Carolina at Raleigh, um, it would be the poorest state in the U.S., and you, you drive out and there's like abandoned textile mills and like the people, they look unhealthy and uh, there's a ton of problems. But then I live in Chapel Hill in Durham now and it's just, it's this awesome place. And it's like this crazy divide between the haves and have nots that I don't think was the case in the fifties and the sixties. I mean, there were plenty of other problems as well, obviously, but you know, what do you think hap- you know, what happened or, or is there a path forward to fix it? I don't know. I mean, look, um, <clears throat> So, so a few things that are important to say, right? Um, we have, well, I, I guess I'll lay this out because we haven't said this yet. It's really important. Yeah. The, the, the general consensus opinion, if you stop a random person on the street and ask, how's the American school system doing? They'll say yeah. it's doing terrible. Right? Yeah. They, they think that it's a factory for failure and that we just have terrible outcomes. Right. The reality is, is that the median American student, your average kid in American public school system. Yeah. Is doing pretty good. Not doing great, 
but you're doing pretty good. Our, Interesting. Our top decile, our top 10%, or if you want to chop it at 5%, 1%, whatever, our top performing students are absolutely competitive with, this, with the best uh, systems in the world. Interesting. If the, if the United States, if there was some huge, big academic Olympics for kids and the United States had to just find its absolute stars, we would be absolutely one of the favorites to win it all. Um, where, we, where we suffer is that we have pockets of incredibly poor performance in some, uh, in some uh, communities. We have people who are performing so badly where the dropout rates are so high, the grades are so low, the attendance record is so poor. Uh, the standardized test scores are so poor that it pulls all of our, our averages down and it also creates a perception of a widespread crisis when there really isn't one. Interesting. Um, so, so there's that. Um, this crisis happens in both urban and rural places. Okay, so um, Got it. Uh, people have heard of horror stories about places like Detroit, places like Chicago, Camden, New Jersey, you know, urban, urban places. Uh, but uh, uh, there's also um, great uh, academic failure, great academic problems in uh, the uh, uh, in the greater Appalachian Mountain region, right? Or the Ozarks, right? The concentrated yeah. white poverty in the Ozark region. Uh, I think one thing that most people don't understand, we focus on Black and Latino students when we talk about education because that's where the gap is and that's important. But it's, it's important that people understand Um most of the, the largest piece of uh, academically struggling students in the country are white students, right? Just pure so numbers. If you are, if you, if you had a, a, a pool of all of the kids in the, in the country who were doing very poorly academically, and you just reached in and grabbed one out at random and pulled them up, the most likely outcome is that they'll be white. Now, of course, this is largely a function of the fact that this is a, you know, dominantly white nation still, you know, even after years of erosion of that white majority. And of course, the percentages are much um, more skewed, uh, much more skewed among black and Latino youth. But it's but still you if we waved a magic wand and every black and Latino student who is struggling now met standard tomorrow, we would still have a large education problem in this country because we have so many failing white students. So that's, um, uh, you know, for years and years and years, uh, the money uh, has been flowing to the cities. The people have been flowing to the cities. Um, the cities have been sites of flourishing. And uh, many of the, um, of the places that are more, not necessarily rural, but more suburban areas or exurban yeah. areas um, have been suffering. Um, uh, so I grew up in Connecticut. Uh, Connecticut, you know, when I was young, always had a, a reputation for great affluence, right, for being yeah. really rich. And there still are a lot of insanely rich people in there. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but uh, it's in a really kind of dire spot because um, there are no big cities in Connecticut that attract the kind of young people who are going to start families and grow the population uh, the way that New York City does, where I live, right? Um, what is powering so much of the of the progress in the country right now? People in urban uh, climates, most of them uh, who are did not were not born in, in urban climates. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, moving here, starting families here, working for hot startups, uh, and uh, injecting new cash, new money, right? In Connecticut, 
the tax base is eroding because the population uh, has increases slowed to the to a crawl, right? And Got it. structurally, it's really hard to see how Connecticut attracts that next wave of young people to inject, you know, human beings in cash. Right? So um, I think that uh, to the extent that there's a rural urban divide uh, in this country in education. Suburban school districts probably still do, still do the best on, uh, you know, when looking from, from 10,000 feet. Because again, uh, most of the, the real problems are concentrated in extreme rural poverty and extreme urban poverty. Interesting. But, um, I don't think that there's two different sets of problems here. I think that the conditions that are, are, um, are hurting the United States are, uh, in terms of education, are pretty universal. That's super interesting. So I, I if, if you ask a bunch of people on the street whether or not they thought we had an education problem in this country and, and you lay those facts out in front of them, I think they'd be really surprised about the median student in the top five to ten percent. But I think it does it does make sense. What would you do with the bottom quartile? You know, what interventions? I have a friend. She's in Mississippi Teachers Corps. And, um, you know, so she's been teaching to get her master's. And she's experienced, you know, all the things you experience as a first-year teacher, second-year teacher. Um, and I, I wonder, they tried to put a lot of money behind the school, but for some reason, it's just, it, it feels like it gets sucked up by administrators and, you know, they're all driving brand new Audis through this like terrible building. And it's just, it's just like this crazy, crazy kind of um, experiment. I, I don't know. I don't know. What interventions would you suggest? Well, I mean, look, um, because I think most of, many of these problems are, um, are social and economic rather than educational. Just um, symptom instead of cause. Right. I, I don't, there's, there's not a lot of directly educational uh, things that I think are going to create major change. Got it. One thing that we can do, as I was suggesting earlier, is no longer thinking that we have to have a silver bullet for all of these problems. You know, let's institute uh, a, uh, a massive small group after school tutoring uh, program in this country for public school stu- students. Uh, and if that moves the needle, you know, you know, point two of a standard devi- deviation in uh, the right direction, then we, we call that a success, right? Um, Got it. We have to change the parameters by which success is determined because we've been swinging for the fences over and over again and we've changed nothing. Um, I would also say that, like, look, I, I would get rid of the uh, of the uh, uh, fairly recent dynamics in in, in public education that uh, have no evidentiary basis and are not working. So, uh, two of the major interventions to try to address uh, the the uh, education crisis in general and the black white achievement gap are uh, standardization and uh, uh, and standardized tests. Right. So. Right. Uh, giving more explicit um, uh, rules about how many instruction hours students need to receive in any given subject, how many hours they need to graduate uh, from high school, uh, what classes they have to take at some point in their career, uh, so standardization in that sense, uh, and then standardized tests, um, which as everybody knows, um, huge corporations like Pearson charge uh, hundreds of millions of dollars to administer tests to see how well students are doing. Um, students are, uh, some students are in some places are taking dozens of hours of tests a year. Um, <laughs> it's important, 
really important to say, there is no reason to believe that widespread standardized testing actually improves academic outcomes. We have, we have no, uh, no good evidence that these standardized testing re regimes actually result in better outcomes, right? If, if that's the goal, they are not justified in terms of reaching that goal. If you say, well, we need to know how well our students are doing, well, that's okay. We already can do that, right? Uh, the NAEP, the National Assessment of Educational Progress, uh, many people will tell you is the gold standard of uh, American educational testing. It tells us, because it's the best data about how well students are doing. The, the NAEP is a test that is not given every year. So students from every age don't participate. Okay. Uh, and uh, uh, it's not given in every school. It's given in samples, right? I mean, we have sampling, the ability to sample statistically, right? Right. We know how to get a representative sample and then to extrapolate from that sample to a population. It's one of the things that we are very good at when it comes to, uh, to statistics, right? Yeah. Um, inferential statistics. That's the, what the inference is, right? Making that inference from the sample to the population. And so it's not necessary to test everyone all the time because we have we have mechanisms that we can put into place that can find out that information. Um, Got yeah, go ahead. So so what's uh, bad about standardization? Does it just suck up too much time? Is it not attuned to each student? Hmm. Well, I mean, I would say in the big picture is the problem with standardization is that it um, is dependent upon the uh, uh, sort of, uh, you know, obviously false idea that all students are the same. Right. Uh, I mean, the, the idea of standardizing a curriculum is to say, we want all of our students to emerge with the same set of skills um, and with demonstrating the same abilities. But students don't have the same set of skills. They don't have the same abilities, right? They have profoundly different abilities by the time they're done with school. Um, standardization was instituted initially uh, as a straightforwardly, uh, straightforwardly as a, uh, uh, a way to uh, serve the industrial class and to, and to create better workers, right? You, you want to standardize so that, you know, someone hiring for the factory knows exactly what everybody went through in high school, right? Gotcha. That doesn't, doesn't serve the student, right? The student, right. Uh, so, uh, you know, we know that standardization is hurting a lot of people because there is an absurd number of students uh, in uh, American high schools and American colleges who cannot pass key classes that are required by the, by the standardized curriculums, whether that's high school or college, uh, and who uh, run up against the choice of either taking the classes again, sometimes for a third time, or dropping out and drop out. So um, gotcha. in the book, The Math Myth, um, uh, uh, Andrew Hacker, uh, who's an economist um, and political scientist, um, he's talk, he talks about uh, the failure rates um, uh, of, of uh, high school algebra tests. So high school algebra, um, particularly like the more advanced algebra for, for juniors or seniors, um, it turns out is just this um, academic hunger games that eliminates God. many, many, many people. So in Arizona, uh, a few years before that book was published, um, uh, you know, hackers research demonstrated that 67% of, of students of Arizona high school students were failing their math requirement on the first try. Oh, wow. Jesus. 
Jesus. So you're producing a system where you're creating a standard that most students can't meet. Right. That uh, standard. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and for dubious benefit, right? Like, um, yeah. yeah. Um, and so to me, that's, that's cruelty, right? Like lower the standards <laughs> or in my, what I would prefer. I mean, look, you know, the other, the other thing you can do is you can lower the standard. Like you can make it easy, absurdly easy to pass. So, um, here in New York, uh, last year, uh, you know, something like, like around 70%. So we had the regents exam as the high school, um, uh, the high school, like sort of standardized tests that you have to take here. Um, uh, something like 70% of the students, uh, who taking the math section passed it, which becomes less impressive when you, uh, realize that they only needed to get 32% of the questions correct in order to pass it. Gotcha. So, you can make a test that's hard and you're creating human misery and you're, you're creating at dropouts. We know for a fact that at both the high school and the college level, uh, failing classes is the biggest predictor or one of the biggest predictors of when someone's going to graduate, of going to uh, drop out, right? right? Failures drive dropouts as a fact. Um, or you can have a standard which, where you continue to have a standard and you talk a good game about it, but you know you know you can't get your students through it if you have, if you have, give them anything like a reasonable you know uh, set like a, a passing cutoff, and so you make a very low passing cutoff just so you can say students pass the standard, which of course is meaningless. To right. me, the more uh, the far more intelligent thing to do is to replace. Uh, <clears throat> uh the that system with one that is more flexible allows for more student choice and so like like these algebra requirements you know um look i've never used algebra in my fucking life okay <laughs> exactly since i graduated from college like yeah um, i think it's beautiful I, obviously at the standpoint of society we need people who can do algebra right yeah but we have a lot of them already right and they're really good at it and i'm not, i never will be right um, so, uh, how about replacing that algebra requirement with a quantitative reasoning requirement, right? Which still involves math, which still involves thinking through the world with numbers, where yeah. you look at scenarios or situations and you look for patterns and data and you learn to interpret n- big numbers and what they mean and what they don't mean. But where you don't have this hours of rigid calculation that um, a lot of students just can't do, right? Um, and it's also, and of course, you, you know, you, you can tailor this to people who are graduating with certain degrees at the college level. Um, organic chemistry is just a serial killer in terms of changing kids' majors, right? Right. Absolutely. Some kids want to go into health professions and can't pa- pass organic chemistry, right? Right. Or related professions. Um, well, I don't want someone who, going to be a doctor who can't pass organic chemistry. So yeah. that's kind of a bummer. But the question is, is, is that class really necessary for the number of kids that we are putting these? Uh, right. And this all gets into academic politics because, remember, like, departments want to have classes that pack the halls because it protects their funding and it gets them sections to give to their graduate students and et cetera, et cetera, right? So a lot of these things, you know, organic chem is um, just one of these huge classes that keeps, you know, chemistry, chemistry department open alive. Right. Um, so I, I get where that's coming from, but the question is, is like, is, are these students really served by this? And if it's, you know, for some, for some places, uh, it's part of the pre-health requirement is to pass organic chemistry. 
you know, does someone who wants to be a, f- a physician's assistant, which is like a technical position, it's, it's not a research yeah. position, right? It's a, it's, right. A, it's a position about learning skills, like, you exactly. know, how to suture somebody. That's, you know, that sort of thing. Do, do we want to screen someone like that out of the out of that profession um, because they can't pass organic chem? So more stand, uh, more uh, options, more flexibility, more forgiveness of failure to meet standards, and reconceptualizing standards to say, you know, um, our students are, are very different and always will be. How can we create a new uh, system that serves more of them? Gotcha. It seems like we've gotten really bad at treating people as individuals. It's all just like, you know, there's this block of students. We're going to do something to all of them and just ignores individual variation, what someone wants to do, what they're good at, et cetera, mm-hmm. in, in order to maximize their personal potential. Um, I, I, I'm curious. Um, I wanted to ask you a few overrated, underrated questions. Okay. Um, if that's okay. Yeah. Uh, so teach for America. Is that overrated? Underrated? I think I know how you'll, it's, over, it's overrated. Um, look, uh, you know, there, are, there is research that indicates that Teach for America students uh, uh, perform better than regular public school teachers. Um, I'm, I don't particularly think much of that research methodologically, but like, look, um, the, we cannot build a, even if we took that at face value, we can't build a functioning public education system on the back of short-term tourist teachers who are right. doing it in order to have something on their resume for when they apply at like or something. Right. Yeah. I banking. Yeah. Yeah. It's not like that is not a stable, uh, <laughs> there's not enough of them. Yeah. Just straight up. Even if and, 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 yes, there's not enough of them, and all, but also like, you know, um, like there's something to be said for like continuity of practice, you know? Right. Experience. Yeah, definitely. Uh, this ability. guy's been here for a while. He knows what's going on. Yeah. Um, and it's also, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm the selection effects guy. And I think that so many of those different perceived differences can probably be explained um, by them simply teaching different populations. I mean, right. I, I, I think this is a really important thing to grasp when we look at it, not just in the perspective of teach for America. Okay. Um, this idea that we're going to, we're going to replace all the bad teachers with, with new good ones. Um, right. There is no bullpen. We don't have a army of new uh, uh, experienced, you know, talented teachers to move in to where these, uh, these teachers they want to get rid of are currently working and take over their jobs. Right. There's no bullpen. That, that does not exist. Um, they're not going to work at the, at the, the pay rates that um, uh, teachers uh, Make, I mean, look, different people are different figures because the way this is calculated is often different. But um, the median American teacher makes something like $50,000 a year, right? Um, for many of the uh, the kind of elite college graduates that people think should be going into teaching, this is simply not competitive in any sense, right? Right. Um, why, why is teaching low status in this country? And like, it, And it seems like the pay for teachers versus like, attorneys and other professionals has just the the gap is widened substantially over time. Yeah. So uh, I believe that in the late 1970s, a first year Manhattan lawyer made about $1,000 more than a a first year Manhattan teacher. Today, today a first year Manhattan attorney makes about $100,000 more. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Uh, Um, Look, it's low status because it was a woman's profession. 
Okay. Oh God, <laughs> Jesus, uh, that sucks. Teaching, teaching was well, what, what, what women did. Teaching women's work is not respected. I mean that that's uh, I mean that's probably the biggest reason right there. Um, look, it's low paid because it's funded with with property taxes, local property taxes, um, and. Again, people always say, oh, we'll, we'll do this. We'll do this big, uh, this big bargain where teachers will lose job security, but they get income. They get a high, they get a higher income. Well, if teachers want to negotiate for that, if their unions negotiate for that and they, and they make that decision, that's fine by me. But how are you going to do that? Are right. you going to dramatically raise property taxes across <laughs> the face of the United States? Do you have any idea how incredibly hard that would be? Yep. It's just not going to happen. And the really important point is, um, you know, people look at like uh, Success uh, Charter Academy in New York, which has yeah. all these, you know, supposed amazing um, outcomes. There's a lot of chicanery involved. They don't backfill, which makes their numbers look better than they. Than they like weird selection effects on. Do they get to like pick their students and get rid of bad students, so, stuff like that? So, uh, char- uh, Success Academy Charters does not backfill after third grade, which means that. Um, you know, they have a supposedly random selection me- mechanism. I have my doubts that they, they say that it's random. Um, but uh, students drop out of, of all schools. Students move on. They drop out. Um, in fourth and fifth and sixth grade, uh, Success Car- uh, Charter Academy does not replace them. Okay. So if uh, students leave, then uh, they, they don't replace those students, which means that, look, uh, the students who are most likely to drop out of a school, to leave a school, to be most transient, are often the ones who perform the least well, right? So um, those students are leaving, and so you you just get this magical uplift in your numbers. Hey, look, from from A through six, we've got this nice, you know, upswing in our numbers, and we'll ignore the fact that you know X percent of our population dropped out. We never replaced them, right? Right. So that's an example. But like, let, let's say that the Success Charter Academy model is, is real and works. Okay? Let's say that, that they've actually cracked the They Their whole model is based on extremely high teacher turnover of students who go to elite colleges, teach for a few years, and then drop out, out of the profession to go do their real job. Right? Mm, interesting. These, these, these teachers are people who do not see themselves as career educators, no matter what they say. They want to go into jobs in entertainment or media or law or banking or whatever. But they, you know, have do-gooder aspirations and they think they look good on a resume and they sincerely believe that they can, you know, raise kids out of poverty. Um, they're willing to come here and not work for very much money in Success Charter Academy under the assumption that they're going to uh, do something on else. something else. Right. Um, they're willing to do that here in New York City, which is an extremely attractive place for a young, upwardly mobile uh, person to live and to work. Right. Right. The question is, is can that model possibly work in the Mississippi River Delta? No, <laughs> absolutely not. Can that work in the uh, Indian reservations uh, in the greater Midwest, which have perhaps the worst educational outcomes of anywhere in the country, right? Right. Can this work in, in decidedly non-sexy places to live, like the, the rotting suburbs of Cincinnati, Ohio, right? Can you right. come, are you willing to come and live in those places for three or four or five years and be a tourist teacher and then move on and then always have a new people stepping in to turn into that place? So yeah, uh, overrated. That's awesome. That's great. Um, head start. Overrated, underrated? 
book. Um, I would have to say overrated because um, it doesn't appear to work. Gotcha. I mean, people shout about this a lot. You can find people who uh, will give you a long rationale for why this is not true. The, 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 the reality is the larger, higher quality uh, pre-K studies find that all of the positive benefits fade out quickly after you leave the program. The ones that people cite as evidence of Head Start's effectiveness are smaller, low-quality studies, which often tend to be much older as well. Gotcha. Right? From a data quality standpoint, it seems to me that uh, Head Start is not justified in those terms, but I still support Head Start. Why? Uh, because kids need safe, warm, nurturing places to be. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Like, if we're not going to get universal pre-K, free pre-K, uh, under the auspices of like daycare, then let's just call it, yeah. Call it Head Start. I don't care. Right. right. Whatever, whatever you call it. But, have, right. a, have a safe place with some food for kids to go. Right. But if you, you know, if you, if you insist on justifying it with test scores, then number one, I don't think it's going to work because the evidence doesn't look good right now, even under the sympathetic light. And what's going to happen tomorrow if the test scores are even worse, right? Like when you create that justification, you say it's all about, it's all about the, the, these, these growth numbers. Well, I, I hope it continues to work out for you. You know, like you're, you're setting yourself up for failure. That makes sense. Um, charter schools. Uh, you know, I was interested in this. I was pretty libertarian in college and I thought, you know, man, if like there was competition, maybe things would be better, but it seems like in the data, they don't really have better outcomes when you account for things like, you know, selecting students and, and uh, things like that. What do you think about charter schools? Look, I just, I think that um, selection affects, I wrote a piece um, years ago called um, the most powerful force in education is selection bias. And I continue, I continue to believe that that's true. Um, they always insist on the, on the stand on the randomization of their, of their mechanism, but you know, just a parent having the wherewithal and the initiative to sign a student up for a, is, a right. is, exactly. sufficient, is sufficient to ruin randomization. Um, but also like, you can't take them their word for it, right? right. These, these institutions have every every reason, every incentive not, not to, every incentive to to uh, misrepresent how they're selecting students. And, and there's been tons and tons of there's a, and I think 2014 Reuters, the the news organization Reuters did a big big uh, investigation, and they just found uh, charter school after charter school that was cooking the books and that was cheating and, and finding ways to mess those things up. Um, Look, why would it work? Like you said, the libertarian argument. Like, yeah, competition makes things better, right? If I yeah. own the only widget factory in town, then I don't have any incentive to make better widgets. But if your widget factory moves in next door and you make better widgets, then then I have to either get better or go out of business, right? Yeah, that's justification. The problem is, is a child's brain is not a widget. Right. right? That analogy, like that thinking, assumes that teachers have direct access to manipulate child brains. Got it. It assumes that uh, that you know the outcomes of students are within the are within the control of teachers. We know that's not true. Rand Education is a big neoliberal policy shop 
they're very much in the pro charter school, you know, anti-union kind of you yeah. know, mode. But even they estimate that student side factors are four to eight times more powerful than uh, school side factors when it comes oh, wow. to, when it comes to determining student outcomes. Right. Got it. So yeah, you have a, you have a widget factory, and I have a widget factory, and there are schools. Only the problem is that's uh, not what it is. We don't get the widgets until they're five years old. <laughs> we only have the widgets for six hours a day. Yeah, the widgets are made out of different raw materials. Uh, there are other people in our, the the widgets' lives who are manipulating them and changing them. Right. Uh, right. All kinds of factors and manipulate the quality and the value of the widget that cannot possibly be controlled by anyone, let alone by us. If you were trying to have a widget factory under those conditions, you might pull your hair out. Right, exactly. It's just, it's too complicated. Um, I had one more question for you. How did you get interested in education originally? Uh, well, I, um, you know, I, I got a bachelor's degree in English uh, from a not competitive public school. Um, and I had, uh, it was in uh, yeah, English and philosophy. Um, I thought, you know, literature and philosophy were, were cool, and I still do. Um, and then I spent the next um, seven years of my life kicking around, living in different places, um, drinking and uh, having fun and um, working a series of completely pointless dead-end jobs. And, you know, I had, I had a great time, but um, I didn't have any sense of what I wanted to do. Uh, and uh, by the time I figured out that I needed to, like, figure where I was going to go next, um, it was 2009, and we were in the the teeth of the. Oh man! Session. And I just had a uh, a bachelor's degree in English from a non-competitive public school uh, with no ex- relevant experience, and I was trying to get a job, and uh, no jobs were forthcoming. So I said, "Well, I guess I might as well go back to college, uh, go back to school, go back to go to grad school." And uh, yeah, uh, I ended up in a writing department at the University of Rhode Island because writing is the only thing I've ever been good at. And um, my um, uh, uh, graduate advisor and mentor, a guy named Bob Schwegler, um, was a uh, empirical researcher. Uh, he, um, at the time, he was doing, uh, he was uh, setting up kids who were writing with eye tracking technology to. Uh, oh wow! To measure uh, where their their eyes were while they were composing and editing. Uh, anyway, and that was all new to me. Um, just the idea of, you know, of being an empirical researcher and talking about data and numbers was new to me. Uh, and I, uh, yeah, so I pursued it. And as I said before, um, writing a dissertation about ed policy made me mad. And uh, all of my experience with education told me that it was broken. So that's how I got interested. That's awesome. Well, Freddie, do you have any book recommendations? I know we're going to put a link to Cult of Smart. It's excellent. I really enjoyed it. Um, and I share it with all my friends. Um, your blog, that's uh, another place we should send? Yeah, I mean, I, you can go to frederickdebor.com. I, I occasionally uh, tap away there. Um, so I would say there's a book, um, if you want a, a book that I think will um, – that's nonfiction. It's about 10 years old now, but it's, but it's still very relevant um, by Hajun Chang, uh, who is yeah. a um, economist. Uh, he is, uh, I, look, he's a liberal and, and a capitalist and I am not neither of those things, but um, it's called uh, 10 things uh, they don't tell you about capitalism. Um, and it's just a series of not, not 10, uh, 23 things they don't tell you about capitalism. Um, and it's things like, you know, there's no such thing as a free market. And he gives you an explanation of why, 
or one of my favorites is um, he argues that the washing machine has had a, a bigger impact on human uh, on human civilization than the internet has. Oh, really? That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, um, but it's a really interesting book with a lot of counterintuitive thinking, um, and uh, he's a very bright guy. So that, that's my recommendation. Awesome. Well, thanks, Freddie. Any other parting thoughts? Nope. Just um, look. I I would just urge anyone who cares about these issues to consider the fact that we've had endemic failure for for a long, long time um, in terms of solving the problems we say we want to solve. Um, but we also have an incredibly narrow band of uh, approved opinion uh, and that nothing changes and yet we never inject any new opinions into that conversation. And so if anything positive is going to happen, it's going to come from greater diversity in the educational discussion space. So it desperately needs it. That's great. Thanks, Freddie. Thanks a lot. Talk to you soon. Well, that's our show for today. I'm Will Jarvis. And I'm Will's dad. Join us next week for more narratives.